everybody. Welcome to This Good Word, episode 12. The word today is Tove. And I cannot contain my excitement about this episode. I spent about an hour a couple days ago talking to my friend and mentor, Rabbi Alan Allman. I've known Alan for about five or six years. He lives in Boston. He is an itinerant rabbi. He travels around the country and the world leading little study groups, uh, the delicious, expansive, and progressive Hebrew scriptures. And I have gotten a chance to be in one of these little study groups for about five years. And Alan is going to blow your mind. Um, His understanding of the Hebrew language, of the overall arc of the scriptures and the story of God, his love for God and love for people is just breathtaking. And I think you're going to catch that in this interview. We talked about the arc of scriptures. We talked about the pulsing, generative verbness of God, the verbness of you and me, and the verbness of the scriptures together. Yes, I said verbness. I might have just coined a new word there, but uh, we are verbs. God is a verb. The scriptures themselves are verbs. So we talked about um, this delicious word, tov, about how each of us have something utterly unique embedded within us by God and the work of our lives is to name it and bring it out and let it bless the world. So you're going to love this conversation. It is so fun. I hope you love it. I hope it blows your mind. I hope it it leads you into, into some new expansive understandings of you, of God, of the scriptures. It's very fun. Before we dive into that, though, as always, some shout outs. I uh, want to say hi to some new listeners in the Congo, Greece, the Philippines, Venezuela, Cyprus, Estonia, Morocco, and the Russian Federation. Hello, everybody. So good to see this good word getting out to you. And I need to say, there are just, I mean, triple digits of people listening in Bulgaria. I would love to sort of find out who you are and how you found out about this good word. So email me or something, steve at steveweens.com. I'd love to hear you. And um, some book updates. Uh, You know, I am releasing a new book into the wild called Beginnings, The First Seven Days of the Rest of Your Life, published by the good people at Nav Press. It comes out January 1st, and it is the delicious story of how I believe creation was not an event that happened many thousands of years ago, maybe millions of years ago, whatever it was. I don't believe it's just that. I do believe it's that, but I don't believe it's just that. I believe it keeps on happening in the ordinary moments of our lives, in the huge crashing moments of our lives, beginnings and creation keep happening. So today and for the next seven or eight weeks, I'm going to do a series on beginnings. They're going to tease at uh, the content of my book, and my hope is that you get it, get a glimpse of what can be seen in your life, in the world, in the lives of the people you love, and even the lives of people you don't love uh, when we start to see the world as endlessly becoming versus stuck. So uh, keep tuning in to This Good Word, as well as my blog. Every Tuesday, I am going to, uh, and I started this last Tuesday, but I'm going to post a new blog um, about the book. So check that out at steveweens.com. It's very fun. 
And I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but the good folks at Oasis Audio brought me down to Chicago this last in the last couple of weeks, and I recorded the audiobook for beginnings. So if you're an audiobook fan, huzzah! We will have an audiobook for you ready to go on release day, uh, available wherever it is that you buy that kind of stuff. So that is very, very fun. I had a blast doing that. And as always, check out all the information on the show notes on my site, steveweens.com. I will give you some links to some books that I will mention at the end, as well as my own book uh, and all, any kind of juicy information that Rabbi Allen is going to share as well. So without further ado, let's take it to the interview with Rabbi Allen Allman. You're going to love this. Enjoy. Well, hello, my friend, Allen. It is so good to have you here on This Good Word. I have waited for this actually for many weeks. Mm. And so you're in town now. You're from Boston. Flew in a couple weeks ago, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. And you've been leading Socratic studies for, gosh, almost that whole time. And right. I got a chance to participate in those, as I always do. And they're so rich. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but I want to dive right in with this question. We talk on this good word about being dust and breath, human and holy, limited and limitless, and we're all in it together. So uh, what does being dust and breath mean to you? Mm. Starting at Genesis chapter 2, verse yes. 7, uh, God breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. But Adam is formed, literally, afar min ha'adama, meaning dust of the earth. So there's, at, at the very creation of Adam, resides this beautiful fusion of earth and breath of the one and living God. And in that verse, it says in the Hebrew that Adam, after the breath of God is placed into him, becomes nefesh haya, meaning a living nefesh, meaning a living soul, meaning a living whole being. So that Adam, from the very beginning, is both afar min ha'adama, dust of the earth, and the breath of God moving through him. And that is that breath, that movement that is in all of us, and of course in Adam, that is our soul. And so it is both something, we are both something concrete and something in motion that is really the motion of the one and living God. Because the name of God is in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Ehie asher Ehie, I will be that I will be. And even as you say the words, you can hear the breath in it. Ehie, asher, ehie. Yes. So that breath movement that is that, well, this is one of the arcing themes, A-R-C-I-N-G, themes that yep. moves through the text. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, there's the Ruach Elohim that is moving from God into and through the creation. And just as that's how it all starts in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, so it all starts with Adam, with also this movement coming from God into him. Mm. So I love that. It starts with movement. It starts with a sense that we are in motion. And I think for so many of us, and I'll just say, especially I grew up in, the, in a Christian church, 
there, there's there's so much of a sense of we are what we are. We are nouns. We are stuck in where we are. We um, there, there's in and and there's not a sense of motion. And there's even a sense that we begin bad. You know that we begin in Genesis three. So could you could you talk a little bit about how how breath of God breathed into Adam, breathed into us? Well, we're again into one of the um, arcing themes moving through the text, which is this idea of that which emanates from God, ruach, breath, movement into the creation, into Adam. And then as you think about the five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, everybody's always in motion, meaning it all starts for uh, Sarai and Abram with the mm. statement, go forth from your native land, your kindred, and your father's house. And as you kind of replay the passages in your mind's eye, oh yeah, they're always in motion. Abraham's always in motion. Isaac's always in motion. Jacob and Joseph and Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, they're always in motion. The, and the Israelites moving through the wilderness, always in motion. In fact, in the five books, the one time when people are not in motion is in the book of Exodus, and that is called slavery in Egypt. Right. And it, you can bring this theme and this river, 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 river of a movement right into Newer Covenant and think about the life of Jesus, Yeshua or Yeshua in Hebrew. And if you think about the passages, he's always in motion. Mm -hmm. And of course, Yeshua or Yeshua is a verb. And again, reflecting that idea of verbness, motion, and what does it mean to say salvation is always in motion through the creation? Right, so, because Yeshua, of course, means salvation. Right. So what does it mean that salvation keeps moving through creation? I love that. So it seems to me that it just starts from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Then you can see it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and then you just see it moving through the text. Yes, yes, yes. So you've mentioned a couple times the ark of scriptures, and I've heard you describe them as a river that's that's mm, flowing. Mm. Can you talk about what you see as the major arc of the story of God found in the scriptures? Well, you've asked a difficult question. Yeah, if you I always had, ask them. At <laughs> least I should yeah, ask them. Turnabout is fair play, right? <laughs> so yes. um, if I had to pick, I would say in the book of Leviticus are two passages which reflect a movement that's going to go through the whole text. Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, verse 34, love the stranger as yourself. How you get to love, though, is one of the more complex trajectories of the text. So if we're starting in, say, Genesis 4, the first passage of the first human beings outside the Garden of Eden, then we're looking at brothers. And in that passage in Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. And God says, um, where is your brother? Cain's response is, am I my brother's guard or am I my brother's keeper? And in fact, we are in a strange sense, being thrown back into the garden with Cain's response, because in Genesis, 2, 5, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God says that 
Adam is being placed in the Garden of Eden. Quick reminder, Eden means delight. So yes. God is placing Adam in the Garden of Delight to work and guard it. Mm. So we are kind of getting this um, sort of unpacking of what does it mean to guard in Genesis chapter 4 when the first question out of Cain's mouth in response to God's question is, am I my brother's guard? And the rest of the book of Genesis will be, in a way, amongst many things, an exploration of what does it mean to be our brother's guard? Well, yes. And you can... Oh, go you, ahead. Well, you can see that in Joseph, the story of Joseph. You can even see that in Abram and Sarai. They're called out of their native land to be sent forth to a land that God will show them mm -hmm. so that they will bless the world. Right. Right. And I think we miss that a lot too. But th that's just being, being our brother's guard or seeing to the shalom of our brothers and sisters. I've heard you say that as right. well. So when you think about this idea, so here's the passage of Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Then we fast forward and it's Isaac and Ishmael, and Ishmael is kicked out of the camp. Right. Then we fast forward, it's Jacob and Esau. Esau threatens to kill Jacob. Jacob is sent out of the camp. And then we're at Joseph and his brothers. And in Genesis 37, the brothers are debating. As they see Joseph coming, shall we kill him, or shall we just kick him out of the camp? And in a sense, that moment where the brothers debate between the two actions that have been preceding through the whole book of Genesis, starting from Genesis 4 to Genesis 37, kill him, exile him. We are coming to that pivot point in the text because the transformed Jacob, the Jacob who has wrestled down the blessing and become Israel in Genesis 37, sends joseph in genesis 37 verse 14 on a mission and that mission is as you already mentioned to see to the shalom of his brothers and the shalom of their flocks and bring back word so joseph is on a mission to see to the shalom of his brothers and then a little bit right after that in genesis 37 joseph is looking for his brothers but they're not there a man comes upon him in the fields and asks this just simple but huge question what are you seeking and for the very first time in all of genesis somebody says i am seeking my brothers yes and that is the beginning of the beginning of the answer now while all that's going on there's another arcing theme that's been going on in genesis 22 Verse 1 is the very first time the word love has been used in the text. Uh, Genesis 30, uh, 22, verse 2, I believe. Um, take your son, the, your singular one, the one you love. And that's Abraham, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham yeah. and Isaac, exactly. Yeah. So here comes the first usage of the word love. And, oh, it's not between consenting adults about coming to marriage. It's a, between a father and a son. Yes. Now, a next major usage of the word love will be in Genesis 37. And again, it says, and Israel, the transformed mm -hmm. Jacob, mm -hmm. loved Joseph. Now. And then it says, like three or four times, his brothers hated him. Right. 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 So right, there's right. that juxtaposition. Yeah. Exactly. Keep going. Keep exactly. going. Exactly. 
And so in Genesis 22, the one you loved was being offered to God. Right. Now in Genesis 37, the one you love is being offered to God, but offered to God on a mission for God. Wow. Which is to see to the shalom of his brothers. Yes. So we're off and running. It's only when we can see that really love is about and includes not just our relationship to God, but our relationship to each other that we begin to enter into tov, good, and the sacred future. Otherwise, it's always just about me. Right, right. Um, and you can suddenly hear almost reverberating forward. There are two great teachings. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. In other words, if I'm loving God, but I don't see you. Right. What is that? And we're now in one of the sort of great images in Leviticus and Numbers that when the Israelites camped around the tabernacle every night, they camped with their faces, the face and the openings of the tent towards the tabernacle. And they would camp in a rectangle. Mm. So they're camped in a rectangle, tabernacle in the center, yep. and the tent opens inwards to face the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is the indwelling presence of God in their midst. So literally, if I'm looking at the tabernacle, I see you. Yep. And if I see you, I see the tabernacle. And if I can look at you and not see God, or I can look at God and mm. not see you, mm. I'm not there. Right. And that brings me back to dust and breath. I mean, if we can't see the indwelling presence. Mm. And it also makes me want to ask a sort of midrash question, which is, who is my brother? Mm. You know? I mean, and so if, if, the over, if one of the overarching themes is to see to the shalom of our brother or to guard our brother and sister, then naturally, who is my brother and sister? And the question, I, I, I think the answer to that keeps expanding. Well, you know. the answer to that, yeah, bravo, couldn't agree more, is yes. And it's actually very early in the text, meaning in Genesis 41, Joseph, who is in prison, is brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh retells the story of his dreams to Joseph. And Joseph's response is, in Genesis 41, not I will interpret, God will see to Pharaoh's shalom. Whoa. So he's already saying yeah. that the shalom of Pharaoh and his whole country is on his heart. In other words, the mission that Joseph accepted in Genesis 37, verse 14, is now being applied to all of Egypt. Wow. So I think from the very beginning, the text is making clear, um, the very, what I would say, beginning by beginning, I mean the introduction of this set of um springs that lead into rivers that lead into arcing trajectories in the text that it's about us yes in the broadest sense of the word so it's not a surprise that in leviticus 19 verse 34 it says love the stranger as yourself right right which is so juicy and isn't it true that that um leviticus 19 18 love the lord your god uh is like if you were to take the torah as a scroll and lay it all the way out in in the 
dead hinge point center would be that verse. Right. Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor yeah. as yourself, exactly, would be pretty much in this. If you unroll the scroll, yeah. it would be pretty much right in the center. Yeah. It's kind of an astonishingly yeah. beautiful thing. Yes. And of course, in the ancient world, that's how people would have been looking at the text. Um, meaning if we're thinking 2,500 years ago, 2,000 years yeah. ago, 1,800 years ago, they would have seen a scroll. Yeah. And they would have unrolled the scroll on occasions. And what's at the center? Oh, love your neighbor. Yes. And I think in, in a world that was so tribal, so very tribal, my people, my gods, my deal, and it's protecting and fiercely, um, I mean, going to war against tribes, this idea that our brother is also the person eventually in the other tribe is radical and revolutionary. And I think part of um, people, most people think of the Bible as irrelevant, old, archaic, wooden, oh, and especially, so sad, I know, I know this is what I'm saying, this is, why, this is why you are here. But especially, I think, the Hebrew scriptures, which some people say depict God as this, you know, I don't know, he demands the murdering of people. And we fail to see the fact that a Brahmin Sarai being sent out to a land that God will show them to eventually be a blessing to the whole world is one of the most radical, revolutionary, uh, progressive thoughts still today. So, wow. There was a lot there. Yeah. So <laughs> let me just pick two things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there, my goodness, yeah. So... I think one of the challenges is who we, the reader, see Abram and Sarai as. You could see them as the founders of the faith. And, <laughs> I love that boy. <laughs> and then that sort of is one perspective. And right. of course it's true. I mean, how yep. could you argue? On the other hand, as Genesis 12 makes clear, they begin their journey and he's 75, and yeah. she's 65, and they don't know God. Right. And so they begin their journey. But, I mean, I think that's a mind blower right there. They begin their journey. They don't know God. But somehow, they go, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, that's, no, that's a mind it. blower. I mean, our minds are just blown right there. Because I think most of us assume, oh, yeah, I mean, they're a Brahmin Sarai. They, they have this intimate, deep relationship with God. But, in fact... They don't. Right. And that seems to me not an unfair thing to draw from the first verse of the whole thing. Go forth from your native land, your kindred, and your father's house to a land that I, God, will show you. Right. Why do they have to leave if they already know God? Right. Why do they have to go on this huge journey? Um, and their names are Abram and Sarai, not Sarah and Abraham. Right. So, and the letter... H is being added to their name in English, which corresponds to the letter Hey in Hebrew. And the letter Hey signifies the name of God coming into their names. But that won't happen until Genesis 17, which is five chapters and 24 years later. So there's And isn't this... the letter Hey the fifth, the fifth letter? Yes. I think it is. <laughs> yes. Which signifies Torah. Which... Oh, right. Ah! Yeah, that's very good. Boom. Yeah. Keep going. Sorry, I am. I am no, no, absolutely. So no, no. Keep going. So, um, or yes, yes, please do. <laughs> anyway, um, so they're on a journey, 
And that journey takes them from outside to inside. And that then brings us to, I think, one of the great challenges that sort of is always with us as we read the text um, in the 20th and 21st century, but perhaps earlier, is that the word Hebrew in Hebrew simply means to cross over. Mm. And that word will be used to apply to Abram and Sarai for the first time in Genesis chapter 14. Yep. Meaning they weren't born Hebrews. Hebrews is a process that happened. Yes. So they cross over from outside of the land of Canaan to inside the land of Canaan, outside from even knowing of an idea of one and living God to starting to know and walk into. And so one of the ways of reading the text is to see them as always having been there. Although it seems to me that the text is trying to say as clearly as it can that they're actually in this movement over both physical space and sacred time towards a growing and enlarging understanding of who they are in relationship to each other and God and how to walk that out. And reading the text as a verb rather than a noun, reading the text as all the human beings in the passage as being in motion, seems to me one of the keys to all of this. Absolutely. So, so there's that in terms of what you were saying. And then there's, um, can I ask you to say what you said again? Do you recall? No. No, rest. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, there's a... Um, oh, you were talking about the, the the idea of how radical the text is. So, yes, it's progressive. It's revolutionary. The other puzzle piece, which I think perhaps is even more, in a strange sense, revolutionary now than it was when it was instituted, although it was a complete revolution when it was instituted, is the idea of Sabbath or Shabbat. Mm -hmm. And Shabbat literally means to stop. And we are at the epicenter of one of the great revolutions because stopping is the first thing shabbat sabbath genesis chapter 2 verse 1 1 through 3 is the first thing to be called kadosh holy yes in in the days of creation and fascinatingly enough nothing in the first six days of creation is called holy not even us what's called holy is the capacity to stop Shabbat, Sabbath, in time mm -hmm. and meet God and be with God. Not do something, right. not get somewhere, but just be with God. And so, and especially in our age where people find it so hard to stop and identity is so wrapped up in what we do and what we can produce and... and it's not that producing is in any sense bad. It's just that it's not everything. Right. And to know that it's in fact in stopping and being wildly relationally connected to ourself, each other, and God is one of the keys to the kingdom. Mm. And so in Exodus chapter 5, Moses first returns to Egypt and he meets with Pharaoh and he says, let my people go for three days into the wilderness to worship. And it doesn't 
sound in the text that he's saying, let my people go for three days into the wilderness and we'll never come back. It's just, let my people go for three days into the wilderness and worship. Pharaoh's response is, it's very clear you guys have too much time on your hands if you can think up these kinds of ideas. Now, what you will have to do is make the same amount of product without me providing the straw. Right. So you'll have to provide the straw. And in a sense, we are at the heartbeat of one of the great simple riddles in the text. There's a river that runs through it. It's a land of abundance. Where are we? You think you're in the promised land or maybe the garden, but you're not. You can have a river that runs through it. Bravo. The Nile in Egypt, the most resourced uh, place on planet Earth. And one of the great civilizations on planet Earth. Yep. And there's abundance, but there's an abundance that lacks a capacity to stop and be. Yes. And as revolutionary as the idea of one God is, the idea that every human being gets to stop for 24 hours once a week was so radical when the romans first met up with it and this is like 1200 years later yeah they were going what is this why would you give your slaves the freedom to stop one day a week right it was simply not known but one could look at our lives today and say how many people will give themselves the freedom to truly stop right for one day a week i mean a lot of people would say if i could stop for a couple of hours in a whole week yeah i would count it well done yes so yeah you know from my perspective i know there's this idea that it's old and it's past but it seems wildly radical and imminently present and actually still offering us some of the great opportunities if we can um lift up the idea that it's oftentimes where we meet best is not in space not even in place but truly in time yes yes um, several months ago, you sent me an email and you were on the plane, I think, Uh-oh. and you said, oh my goodness, this thing just came to me, uh, from Abba, you said, and, um, I want to share it with you. And so I've had this up on my desk here, um, ever since. And I look at it from time to time. Can you read that? Would oh. you mind? So this, this, and if you want to give it any preface, nothing. Okay. It all starts with Abba and his living word. We study the word to embody it. Once we start to embody it and live it, then it starts to come forth into the world. Then the living word of the living God brings forth healing and faith and home and sacred community and brings people to their sacred future and or to whatever Abba intends for his word to do. It looks like what it will look like and each case will be sacred and unique and unlike any other creation, and yet participating of the one that can only come from the living God. And I think that's a mic drop right there. That's why I printed it out, and that's why I look at it, because I think, in a sense, this radical and revolutionary word um, is for us to embody somehow. Mm. And even the fact that we can do that and can try to do that is evidence of this community that has been being formed for 
thousands of years and will continue forward. And there's a lot of people out there who, you know, it's the death of God, the death of church, the death of... And I'm just not that worried about that because it's gone through all... I mean, it's gone through Egypt, it's gone through Babylon, it's gone through... And it will always... The community of God will always will continue to exist and in some ways reinvent itself, yeah. but in some ways have ties all the way back to this the holiness of stopping when we choose to to live as the community of God who yeah. right and so um and I think that's one of the things you've helped me uh understand so much yeah the uh, uh well, <laughs> I couldn't agree more I think. There is this almost natural tendency to be afraid for the death of that which we most love. Of course. Um, and one can think of that on so many different planes uh, and ways. And yet, that which is eternal can't die. That which is ephemeral, ultimately, can't remain. And you very rightly noted, well, there was this great empire of Rome or great empires in Mesopotamia or great empire of Egypt are are great. We could go on and on. And they've come and they've gone. And when you think about it, it's just sort of a combination of mind bending and heart opening to see there's this one little small tiny group of people and they were kind of meandering around Canaan and and they had a book but lots of people had books and lots of places and lots of people had a lot more power with their to connect their book to and yet that book is alive and well and actually all over the planet yeah and all these other books and all these other empires they came and they went yeah and so it's our capacity to rest in kind of sacred river of continuity and not to walk out our faith from a place of fear right but walk out our faith from a place of knowing that we are in the river of eternity in the present tense yes yes which in the present tense outside of time it's just so good all right so i want to ask you and this is might be more of a lightning round sort of questions However, they could each turn into rivers of their own. So the uh, words in Hebrew have such delicious meanings and nuances and subtleties that we can miss unless we uh, are around people like you who know them. So I want to give you the names in English, and please translate them into Hebrew with whatever commentary that you would like to add. Does that make sense? Okay, so Moses. Moses um, receives his name, fascinatingly enough, from Pharaoh's daughter. Um, and she says, I am naming him this, this is Exodus chapter two, because I drew him forth from the water. And so Moses then becomes that person who draws the Israelites with the help of God, of course, through the water. Right. And then of course he will on several occasions, one in Exodus, one in Numbers, draw water forth from the rock right so his name given to him by pharaoh's daughter unbelievable turns out to be the meaning and gifting of his life yes yes so it's and that's actually very consistent in the text your name or 
what I'll call your God name is your identity. Yes. Which might not necessarily be Al or Jane, but a name that is embedded deep within us from the beginning. Yes. And that is one of the things I do write about in my in my book in, mm-hmm. in day six when we're creating God's image. And over the course of our lives, we get named. And, right. But they're not good names. They're, they're scars. And our true mm-hmm. name is covered up. And so I think there is a process, a sacred, mysterious, who knows how it happens, process where we are allowed by Abba to see our real name. And just returning to Moses, because bravo, couldn't agree with you more. His first act when he leaves Egypt is he goes out into the wilderness. And what does he do? He draws water from a well to nourish others. Right. So beautiful. And you could also see, this might be a bit more of a meta idea here, when he is in all places in a cloud. And what is cloud but mist and water? That's where suddenly the living word comes down into the human domain. So Moses and his relationship to water and drawing things forth through the water is, well, it's all part of his name, and yet it takes many different manifestations in his life. Yes. And then, in all fairness, he doesn't really experience that in his young life in Egypt. He only experiences that when he leaves Egypt. So can we go through seasons of our life or decades of our life when, for a variety of reasons, we don't get to live into our name? But it doesn't change our ability to step into it right. when, the, when that season does come. But there are sometimes long seasons in the wilderness of right. waiting and and I think, boy, that's one of the, I'm, I'm impatient, we're impatient, yeah. and it's hard to, and I mean, I mean, I write about seasons in the book too, but it's hard to be in the season that you actually are in. Right. And, and we will judge ourselves harshly for nothing happening right. when it may be something as simple as it's not the time. It's not the time. And, you know, that's very easy for me to sit here with you in the yeah. comfort of this room and say, but I think in all our lives... Sometimes it's just not the time. And can we not judge ourselves as we walk through those particular periods? Yes. Oh, so good. Okay, second word, uh, Joshua or Yeshua, and of course, Jesus. Right. So, wow. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus all mean the exact same thing. The root idea is salvation. The sixth book of the Bible, the book of Joshua, is literally nobody... 2,500 years ago would have heard in their ear Joshua as a meaningless word. Um, What they would have heard is it's the book of salvation. Mm -hmm. And here it is. It's the 12 tribes having received the living word, having received sacred time, having walked that out for 39 years, entering the promised land with the tabernacle, meaning God, the indwelling presence of God at the center, and they are beginning to live as a sacred community in the promised land. And I want to suggest we could read Newer Covenant and notice that that's exactly what 
salvation, Yeshua, Jesus, is attempting to do. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a sense of the promised land. We hear that and we hear arrival. We hear that and maybe we right. even hear and we go now perfection. All over yeah, again. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But really, uh, when Joshua led the 12 tribes into the promised land, guess what? There's enemies. There's learning to live it out. There's failure. There's process. There's becoming. There's all this stuff. And I think the same is true when Jesus shows up in the newer covenant, on the newer covenant, and talks about uh, what does it mean to be in the kingdom right here right. and right now, right. right? And so there is no, you know, is there an arrival? Uh... Well, so this, if I say there's no arrival, that would be unfair. But right. if I say that arrival is a noun, then I would not be reflecting the text. Right. So what I would want to present is that we do get to the promised land. There is a land flowing with milk and honey, and we in sacred community do live in it and from it. But that too is a verb. And then there's all the things we do once we're there. Yes. To live that out and bring that to life and transmit it to the sacred future, the next generation. Um, and how we go about communicating what it's like to live the verbness of that seems to me one of the great challenges. Um, is it okay to tell a quick story? Do Please we? do. So, um, in May, I was leading a trip to Israel with um, a group that studies with me in England. And there were two young tour guides who had just received their tour guide license, which is a two-year course of study in February. And it's now May. And one of the guides is 32. And I've known him since he was 19. We've been studying together since then, since he was 19. The other tour guide who's 30, I've known him since he was three. And he's been studying, we've been studying together since he was 16. And they just knocked this trip out of the park. But more importantly, in terms of living out from the promised land and some of the implications of the verbness of that, is we were putting together the trip. And they had a bunch of ideas which I really hadn't thought of or seen in all my life for an Israel trip. And they presented them to me. And sometimes I was kind of hesitant because I just wasn't familiar with them. I couldn't quite see yeah, it. Yeah. But for the most part, we went with it. And when we did, I saw a way of doing it that I hadn't seen before. Ah. And it wasn't that I would have any criticism of what I've been doing in recent years in Living Israel trips. You've been on one, yep. so you yep. know. Yep. And yet, there's more. And what mm. they were doing, I was going... Oh, my goodness, I can see on the horizon how that would lead to this and this would lead to that in ways that I had never thought of before. Yeah. And, of course, what I'm trying to get at is something that I think is really fundamental. I want to be surpassed. Mm. I think there is more and there is better. God's hand is not too short. And I don't think I can think up all the ideas or everybody in my generation has already used up all the best ideas yeah. and now it's gone forever <laughs> and there's nothing left. Yeah. No, there's always so much more. Yeah. And so it's a verb. It's going forward. Yes. Great, great joy. Beautiful. Okay. I love that. Okay. Uh, the word Egypt. Right. Egypt, uh, Mitzrayim in Biblical Hebrew is the word Egypt. It has the root Tsar, and Tsar literally means narrow. So Egypt is topographically narrow because it's all along the Nile. 
but in a sacred sense, it's narrow, and this hooks back into something we've been talking about. False gods will not give you the freedom to stop. Mm. And, and now we get to one of the great modern, I would say, confusions, perhaps. We think a false god is an idol or is paganism or something. False gods pay the bills. Mm. So they had housing, they had a superabundance of water, and they had a superabundance of food, which the text actually makes clear in the book of Numbers. It talks about the Israelites missing the leeks, the onions, the garlic, yep, the fish, yep. the melons. So it's not that the false gods don't offer you something. It's that they don't offer you a sacred connection to God and a capacity to stop. Mm. So uh, false doesn't mean that there isn't something on offer. Right. And incidentally, if you really think about it, just in terms of the reality of, the, of life 3,200 years ago, God is asking them to leave in, in the book of Exodus, the greatest, one of the great civilizations on planet Earth, to go out into the Sinai Desert in April. I mean, it doesn't yeah. take a rocket physicist to know that this is really a jolly bad idea, <laughs> you know? So, um, and it's only going to get May and June. Yeah. Why would I leave one of the great civilizations where everything is secure and my family will be fed? Yes, there, there is a very high cost. I don't have time and I don't get to have sons. But I can still feed the family I've got. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Egypt. So Egypt is the narrow place that offers you something that even on some level is delicious, but it just isn't what you're really hungry for. It isn't what you were created for. Exactly. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. When the Israelites leave Egypt, of course, that verse isn't there yet. Man does not live by bread alone. Mm-hmm but by every word that comes forth from God. Well, yes, but a lot of people would look at you right in the eye right now, 2015, and say, I can't eat words, right? and I can't eat and feed my family and do my 401k and yep. pay my taxes. Yep. And nobody is saying, of course, six days you don't labor, but the great question is, do we see that Food alone never satisfies. Mm. There is something else in us. And that goes right back to our very opening question, dust and breath. Right. And the capacity to inhabit both. It's not either or. I'm not mocking in any sense having a home or, or paying our taxes. And yet, if I mock the capacity for the sacred breath in each of us, and if I won't nourish that, and that can only be nourished not by objects or things or actions, mm. but by being with each other and God. Yeah. yeah. I think it's so fascinating, this idea of stopping, because we look at it, even still, it's hard to stop. Uh, you know, is it going to be all these rules I have to follow if I stop? Why would I do that? And really, it's, 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 it's designed for our souls into which God initially breathed right. the breath, our right. nefesh. It is one of the only ways our souls will be at rest. And just to um, piggyback on that for just a second, 
Adam is created at the end of day six and then placed into the Garden of Eden. Eden means delight on the Sabbath. Yeah. So it all starts quite literally and on a, in a spiritual sense, it all starts with stopping. Yes. Wow. And if I was, if I had to pick one thing only that I could talk about, it would be the idea that six days you will labor and then your reward will be the Sabbath. Oh, if you work really hard, mm. then your reward will be retirement. No. It all starts with being with Abba. It all starts with being and then live our doing from that place of being. Yes. Not, I'm going to claw, scratch, yep. strive. Yep. For vacation. <laughs> yes. Two weeks vacation. Right. Woo! When that's the real, that's real life. Yes, right. <laughs> right, exactly. No. So, yeah. Okay. So let's get to... Um, Tov, this beautiful, rich word, T-O-V. Let's spend some time on that. Can you unpack where that first starts and then where it goes? Right. Oof. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> Graduate level stuff down here. Yes. You're earning your coffee right now. Shift into another gear. Yeah. So Tov uh, is the word that gets translated as good. And it shows up uh, very early in the text, day one. Uh, a place where I think one gets to see it uh, more clearly, very early, is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. Mm -hmm. And in it, there are seeds on the earth that are placed there by God speaking them in Genesis 1, verse 11. And then verse 11 ends, and it was so. Then Genesis 12, chapter 1, verse 12 says, And the earth brought forth the seeds. And when with future seeds in that which grows from those seeds, and God sees that that is Tov. God sees, this is Genesis chapter 1, verse 12, God sees that it is good. So, um, one of the ways that I've just come to think about this over the years is a very unhandy-dandy formulation, but I'm trying to cover as many of the ideas yeah. as I see in this, um, which also can be seen, incidentally, in Isaiah 55, um, oh, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful yeah. set of verses where he's talking about pretty much this exact same idea. And the way I sort of have come to formulate it is the actualization for the potential for life embedded in the creation by God when the creation brings it forth with the seeds of future life in it. So each of us has the breath of God within us, each of us has those seeds. This is both biological and non-biological. I think for a lot of us, it's very easy to see the biological dimension with children. Um, and very clearly, there's also a whole bunch of other things. So there are so many people I know who have these incredible giftings, uh, whether it's maybe to paint or maybe to do poetry or maybe it's with numbers or maybe it's with music or who knows what it would be. It could be absolutely anything. And the great question is, will they bring that forth? Yes. In community. Yes. Because doing it by yourself in isolation is not the same as living it together. So what does it mean to bring that forth? When we bring that forth, we experience our lives very differently. Mm. So I think we all know people who we would look at them and if we were kind of being objective, we would say, well, they have a nice house, they have a nice car, they have a good job, they, they're healthy, and thank God their children are healthy. 
And yet the people are clearly dissatisfied. Yeah, they're stuck. They're miserable. Right. But it's kind of a quiet desperation, as uh, whoever it was said. Yeah. You know, like you, you sort of, if you could peel back the layer, which it's almost translucent, this translucent layer, you could see it. You're not, you're not living according to what you could live into. Right. And that's, I think, what you're saying. Exactly. And to bring that forth, to make that manifest, however that is. And, of course, we're going back to that thing that you asked me to read earlier. Yep. It looks like what it will look like. Yeah. And each case will be sacred and unique. So I'm not trying to say, oh, you have to do this, and that's nope. Tove, that's good. Um, or we have to do that, and then it will be good. It's actually coming to discern what it is that we were created to be. And... Each case will be sacred and unique and unlike any other creation. And yet, and this is this, it's so fun, participating of the one that can only come from the living God. So if you will, each of us is like a, a sacred snowflake, a perfect fractal. Yes. And it's perfect. And it's unique. And yet we all fit together. Mm -hmm. And seeing those connections and how those connections weave things forth. Um, one of the images that I kind of hold when I'm thinking about this is, yes, I can play my um, timpani or my French horn, but it sounds so much better when it's the whole symphony. Right. And when we're all playing together. Right. And there's also a conductor and there's also a composer and there's... And suddenly, and then there's a room full of people, and we feel the response of the room yes, full of yes. people. But I want to say, imagine an orchestra where there was a chair that was empty and with your name on it. You know, because I think we immediately go to this place of, well, there's the first chair, and I'm not it, and so it's scarcity. You know, and so well, I, you're really good at this, and I, I'm not as good. But picture an orchestra where your instrument is sitting there, whatever it is. Yeah. Your chair is there with your name on it. If if no one if if you don't occupy that chair and if you don't pick up that instrument and play, no one else will because it's totally unique. Amen. And I think that's the kind of vision we need to see because I really do. This is scarcity thinking. I think so many of us will see someone. I do this. I'll see an author that's killing it. This guy's nailing it on his podcast or with the sermons. His church is bigger than mine. And I'll think, oh. That's my, so funny. That's how I think instrument. of you. <laughs> killing it in the podcast, killing it on the sermons. Exactly. You know what I mean? So, well, yeah. This brings us to a huge question. It's kind of tangential, but kind of not. Yeah. Can I, we rejoice in each other's joy? Yes. And each other's successes? Yes. And there is a very exquisite kind of fulfillment that happens in sacred community when we can rejoice in each other's successes. Mm. I mean, okay, true confessions. When you are giving a sermon and you are absolutely knocking it out of the park, that is incredibly sweet to me. Mm. Um, but to me, that's kind of like an easy one. Yeah. I want to suggest I and we all have ones that are harder for us to do. Right. Where, yes, that person is really doing something quite extraordinary. And can I rejoice even though maybe it has too many pieces of things that I could do, but yeah. I'm not doing well yet yes, and all yes. that. Oh, yeah. that's so... You know, and that's, you brought up Isaiah 55 a few minutes ago, and that's this idea of buying and eating 
wine, you know, without cost food. Exactly. And and so there's this picture of this table, and we're all gathered around it and eating greatly, but we haven't paid anything for it. You know, it's, right. it's this gift to enjoy. And if we could just enjoy the orchestra, enjoy each other's. Right. So Tove, this, in this, I mean, um, you've read my book. This is what I want. This is this is why I wrote the book. Yeah. Beginnings, so that and this I I I one of the questions here that I haven't even gotten to is, what do you see as your calling? And I do want to hear you answer that, but I feel like I could answer that based on what Please. I know about you. I'd rather you answer is it, that, actually. You you gather uh, little groups of people around the sacred word in sacred community, so that we can bring forth our tov. So that we can bring forth those seeds of life that God has embedded within each of us. And when we do, it creates, it generates a beautiful future. I mean, it, 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 and it doesn't maybe generates is, is the wrong word because it's, it's been, an, you know, well, initiated it's generative, by God. right? It's generative. Yes. yes. Yeah. So I think that is what I, that the people that read the book, it follows the seven days of creation and this whole idea of Tove, and I write about you in my intro and about your definition that you just gave. My hope is that we can occupy the seat in the orchestra, see our name on it, see our instrument, pick it up and play yes. with abandon. Exactly. And because I think there's a sense, when we get close to what our Tove is, my opinion, there is a sense of exhilaration and then immediately followed by a sense of fear of, oh, that can't, po I love that. I mean, that can't possibly be something that would bring joy and hope and goodness to the world. That's an indulgence. You know, I, I need to not do that because that's, that's what I like. Um, I, need to, I need to get the real work done. We can need to get serious. Yeah, again. need to get serious. Yeah, yeah. And can, can you, you talk about that as, as it relates to, to well, Tov? I think you've really hmm, said so many things so beautifully. One of the things that I feel you were pointing towards is when we're living from our place of bringing forth that breath of God within us, that mm -hmm. Tov, we feel incredibly vulnerable. Yes, exactly. And that vulnerability causes us to want to shy away and say things like, oh, I got to get back to real life. I yes, got to get yes, serious now. Yes. When, in fact, when we live from that and bring that forth, nothing will bring forth greater joy and the sacred future for more people than living from there. And there will be this explosion of energy that's going to come from us yes. in a lot of different directions. And it's like the spring that's just bubbling up and watering everything mm -hmm. in all around. And, but on the other hand, that vulnerability, that incredible hypersensitivity to that place causes us to want to protect it. Yes. And that's actually antithetical to all of Scripture. Genesis 37, verse 3, just to return to that verse for a second, Israel loved Joseph. Now, the tendency when we really love something or feel something's really incredibly, incredibly precious and central to us is we want to protect it. Yes. But what Abba's asking us to do is, no, send it forth. And not just send it forth, but send it right at the thing that might be most wanting to 
destroy it. In other words, what does Israel say to Joseph? See to the shalom of your brothers and the shalom of their flocks. But as you just mentioned earlier, the brothers want to kill him, or at right. least they hate him a lot. Can we send our toe forth to the exact place where God wants it, which might not be the easiest place. In fact, it might be Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it might be the, a place wherein we would be most afraid to live it. Mm. And yet that's exactly where it's most needed. Yes. So living in that tension is one of the great challenges. Oh, mama. Yeah. And I think that's why we need to stop. That's why we need sacred community around us. That's why so many times over the last five years, I've kind of, in, whether we've been on trips together or in study, I've pulled you aside and said, oh my gosh, here's what's going on. And you're always calling me back to my tove, calling me back to my roots, calling me back to stopping. And, um, and that helps me do that same thing with my friends and my boys exactly. and my family and and so, um, and we see that that is creating future life. I mean, even those conversations are seeds, you know, right. um, even though the, the walks that we've taken, the talks that we've taken, the study sessions we've been in is proof is not quite the right word, but it's like proof that, no, this is real. I mean, right. this idea that seeds of life um, spring up and create more life right. in an abundant fashion, we, we don't even know. And go to link this back to something else we were talking about just a little bit earlier. Excuse me, to be patient with this process. Yeah. Meaning it may take me months or even years to get to that next step. Right. And that might even not have very much to do with me, but the timing of God. Yes. And while we're living into that, to not say, well, I'm not living it. This is hopeless. Right. I give up. Right, right, right but rather just to be gentle and mm. and so what's oftentimes lost in reading Exodus chapter 3 when Moses stands at the burning bush are the few verses that precede it and what precedes it is not Moses having some kind of great epiphany that now he's ready to serve the one and living God and therefore he's going to the mountain of God rather what precedes it is the people in Egypt crying out God hears their cry yes. and then God's going to act so it's actually the people who are now ready. Mm. The people have called out to God, and now God's going to have this bush burning that yep. Moses may or may not see. So it's so vulnerable, exactly. isn't it? I mean, even God, even that way, it's just so. Anyway, so it's all of it together, and and sort of stepping out of this isolated eye into this very large conversation, which I would say we're all in, and. Yes, the people, they're crying out because they know that something is missing. God hears their cry and is ready to act. And Moses has something that's missing. He's supposed to draw forth the water, through the water, pardon me, and the water. Yes, and yes. it's all coming together. Yes. Oh, okay. I'm looking at the clock and I'm seeing that we've already gone for an hour. It's unbelievable. Yeah. We can go for another hour. Can I ask one more question? And it might be a difficult one. And you've already you you already have touched on it, but for folks out there, um, and I think there's a lot of people that are saying, "Great, I want to occupy my chair. I want to pick up my instrument. Mm. I, I want to play. Maybe it'll take a long time. I'm okay with that." 
how does one begin to even start the journey of discovering what their tov is? So I would say the quickest, most direct route is talk to people who love you. Mm. The people who love us in our lives know what it is. And if we just look them straight in the eye and ask them to name what it is that is at the center of who we are, for the most part, the people who love us can name that actually quite easily and quite quickly. Now, we sort of have to get ready to hear it. Right, right. Because sometimes that stuff is really hard to hear because it's so sensitive and, it's, right. and we'll feel incredibly seen. And this goes to a huge theme that we haven't picked up on, but it is one of the huge arcing trajectories of the text. What does it mean to see and be seen? Mm. The first one who's described as seeing is God, and God sees that the light is good. And then we're fast forwarding Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Go forth from your native land, your kindred, and your father's house. We talked about the leaving piece of that verse, but we didn't mention um, to a land I, God, will cause you to see. Yes. And then Genesis 13, verse 14 and 15. Um, God says to Abram, um, lift up your eyes from where you are and look to the north, south, east, west, all the land that you see. I will give to you and your offspring forever. But this is not simply a, a seeing of the eyes. It's what I would call a sacred seeing, a God seeing, learning how to see as God sees, mm. which includes the past, present, and future, includes what's physically in front of us and what's not physically in front of us. And then the, a continuing dimension of this idea of seeing can be found in Genesis 16, where Hagar describes the place where she has experienced God as place where she has been seen by God right so it's seeing each other seen by God we're back at the Mishkan when I look at God I see you when I see you I see God the tabernacle the tabernacle thank you yeah and the question is will I release myself from the isolation of my individual seeing and allow those who love me to help me to see what's within. Yes. So that would be my quickest short answer to that very profound question. So I'm going to sum up what does it mean to say, I want to see. I want to see sacredly. I want to see truly. And admitting I'm probably blind, at least in some ways, when it comes to seeing myself and others and right. God. And so... I will. I need to go to people that love me and that trust me and that I trust, and and then be probably patient as the seeds uh, of life. I have a friend, um, and we're well. I have a friend named Steph, and you know Steph, and this mm. is playing out so beautifully in her life. Hi, Steph. Now you're listening. Hello, Steph. And we love you, and I'm seeing this happening in in your life, Steph, and it's. Maybe I'll interview her. Maybe we'll interview you at some point, Steph, to see how the Tove plays out. But there was a leaving. It was painful. There was a going to a land that she did not know. There was a lot of mystery in that. And now it's starting to come together. She's leading Socratic studies. She's teaching in a different way. We've had her at Genesis a few times. And she's, I mean, I don't know if you've heard the, her talks, but she's knocking it out of the park. Mm. She's becoming herself in a whole not even new way, a fuller, much fuller way. I did hear one of her sermons you did. at Genesis. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She's good. Yeah. 
Um, so, okay. And, you know, I, I lied. I want to ask you one more question. <laughs> I lied. Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> so I've written my book called Beginnings. It's about the seven days of creation seen less as, you know, these seven 24-hour periods and more as a pattern for the all the continuation of creation that that inhabits all of the scriptures mm -hmm. uh can you talk a little bit about what you see in the beginning and how you see the seven days playing themselves out in different sure. parts of scripture sure yeah um hmm, so much well to pick one thing oh maybe two okay so yeah um there's a way of reading the text wherein the seven days of creation happen once and they're over and that's it um but that's actually not how we read almost anything we ever read. Right. The opening paragraph is the introduction, and it's really setting the table for everything. So just to pick one example, um, on day one, God sees the light, that it is good. But if you just read back in that verse a little bit, the light is in the darkness. Yes. And after God sees that the light is good, God draws forth the light from the darkness. So... That then becomes something that we can see over and over again in the text. Yep. Ninth plague. Yep. Simple example. The ninth plague, there's darkness over the whole land of Egypt. Well, that sounds a lot like day one. Right. There's light in the Israelites' homes. But if it was firelight or light from oil lamps, um, that could be in the Egyptian homes. And that brings us right back to day one because... Sun, moon, and stars aren't created till day four. So then the question is, what is the light of day one? Yes. Well, whatever that light is, it might not necessarily be physical light, at least from the sun, moon, and stars. So here we are. It's the ninth plague. There's darkness, and that corresponds to the darkness of day one. There's light in the Israelites' homes, and that corresponds to the light of day one that's in the darkness, and the light of the ninth plague is in the darkness. And then, of course... God's going to draw forth the light from the darkness. Mm. So that becomes the image. Yeah. Uh, and that's just one quick example of how day one will play out. Um, and you'll see that image over and over again in the text. But then there's day two. And there's an image in day two, which will become very central to the text, of waters being separated. But if I used a very slightly different word, you'd go, oh, I've been seeing that in the text all over the place. Instead of saying waters are separated on day two, just say waters are parted. Yeah. And then suddenly you go, oh, right, of course. Israelites cross, waters part. Israelites cross into the promised land. In the book of Joshua, waters part. Yeah. Second book of Kings chapter two. Um, Elijah parts the water to go out, and then Elisha parts the water to come back. So suddenly we realize, oh, we've been seeing this all along. And so the days of creation are moving through the text. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Ah. Well, thank you, uh, Alan, my friend, my mm. beautiful friend. Um, I love you and mm. love our time together. I love that this now gets to be shared with whoever wants to listen to it. Um, I wonder, I, I didn't ask you for this, so if, if you're not prepared for this, but I wonder a closing blessing sure, on, sure. Uh, on, on this podcast. So let me just say, I love you, Steve, mm. and you are such a gift in my life, mm. and um so blessed, so mm. blessed, and grateful. Mm. And I'll just do the 
the priestly blessing, the Aaronic blessing from Numbers chapter 6. Yivarecha Adonai v'yishmarecha God bless you and guard you. Yair Adonai panavelecha v'yichuneka The light of God's face upon you and grace you. Our face lifted up to God's face and know. Amen. Oh, um, thank you, my friend. Oh, thank you, mm. Steve. Mm. Okay, gang, I hope you loved that. I hope you were as enriched as I was. As the interview went on, the conversation went on, I just got more and more excited, as I think you could see. So that was so fun. My friend Rabbi Alan Ullman, he is a gift. I hope that was a gift to you. Okay, what is blowing my mind these days? I'm going to close with this. I always do. It's a book, and it's very associated with the conversation we just had with Rabbi Allen, but it's a book called Midrash by Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. I'll put the link on my show notes. Midrash is the way of uh, looking at Scripture as not just the stories we find about people thousands of years ago. It is asking the kinds of questions that help the scriptures discover our own story. So like in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, when Adam and Eve uh, eat the fruit and God asks, where are you? We don't just, in Midrash, we don't just see that as a question for Adam and Eve, we see that as a question for us. Into all of our hiding, into all of our shame, God asks where we are. And Midrash is a way of uh, looking at the scriptures as divinely inspired by God and also extremely um, generative for our own lives. If we take the time to ask the kinds of questions and to approach the scriptures with questions, wondering what it means for us. So it's very, very good. Check it out. Midrash by Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. Uh, the byline is reading the Bible with question marks. And again, remember, remember to check out the blog every Tuesday for the next eight weeks, steveweens.com. It's going to be fun. If you want to read the first two chapters of my book, Beginnings, I would love for you to do that. You can download them and read them for free. I'll put the link on my show notes. And there are just a few tickets left to my book release party on Friday night, December 11th. So if you are in the Twin Cities or can get to the Twin Cities, Please, I'd love you to come. We're going to have uh, copies of the book available for you to purchase about three weeks ahead of release date, and it's going to be a blast. We just had a planning meeting yesterday with some of my friends, and we're planning for a very good time. So check that out. Reserve your spot. You can get that all on my show notes. Everybody, we are dust and we are breath. We are human and we are holy. We are limited and we are limitless and we are in it together.
Grace and peace, everybody.